Chapter 13 Barry understood what was happening. He accepted he was no longer required to be a highly paid international fixer for a German bank. It made sense that all his time should be freed up so that he and Teresa could concentrate on the matter of his insanity. They'd met with the family doctor and a pleasant colleague who had both recommended a private hospital away from the bustle of London. Less than a month after the bizarre incident in the garden, Barry had agreed to be taken to a location close to Bristol where he was admitted for treatment and everything wrong would soon be put right. The resident psychiatrist was a balding, bug-eyed man of Swedish descent. Big Hugo Nyberg, with his clipped accent and his brown teeth, seemed to have his hands permanently bunched into the pockets of his white gown. There were too many pens in his pockets. The first thing he said to Barry was, How are we today, Mr. Heller? Barry thought of the answer in German. Wir sind alle krank. He shrieked with laughter, the way Nyberg looked at him. It was amusing, extremely exhilarating. Barry couldn't stop laughing and spluttering more things in German, if only to get more bug-eyed reactions. Nyberg took it to be further evidence of a continuing psychotic episode, ticking his mental checklist furiously. The patient's flight of ideas, pressurized speech, high levels of delusional content... The important thing was to get Barry's behavior on an even keel. He was told that the catiapine had been prescribed in order to counter the effects of hypermania he was experiencing. Staff would observe him. They would take his blood. They would try their best to achieve the correct therapeutic doses. If the catiapine didn't work, there were always other drugs they could try. The medication came in small paper cups and staff would have some water and a smile ready for him every time. Within days, Barry became more gloomy. He didn't feel like cracking any more jokes. He liked to rub his fingertips together, sometimes smacking his lips as if something tasted bad. During their sessions, Dr. Nyberg would explain the problem matter-of-factly. It all seemed very straightforward. Barry had experienced an episode of euphoria. He'd broken through the surface, and for a while he'd seen ordinary things in a spectacular fashion. All of it will have been luminous and meaningful, like a flash of insight, the doctor suggested. Naturally, such a vivid state would have been a shock to the system. It may have triggered Barry's psychosis. The doctor talked about coming down from this horrendous state, Horrendous, he kept saying. Horrendous. Barry came to understand how horrendous it all was. The doctor also seemed to be of the opinion that his patient had been susceptible all his life. He indicated that he felt Barry might be genetically predisposed to mental illness. This surprised Barry, but maybe it was true, he thought. Maybe he had experienced strange episodes in the past presumably far less intensely, but building all the time, until the crunch came. Barry may have developed coping strategies to deal with it, Dr. Nyberg argued. He explained that Barry would have had to deny what he was going through quite frequently. 
Now it was no longer necessary to deny his symptoms. We can be frank, can we not? The good doctor would remark, always grinning, his teeth truly brown, brown streaks on the two front teeth Barry couldn't take his eyes off. It didn't take long before a sense of recovery was fostered in the patient. He dared to be more like his old self again. For the most part, he was polite and attentive. He stopped trying to say things in German and came round to the kind of English he used to feel safe with, the brittle American voice he loved when he felt on top of things. They weren't letting him smoke his pipe, and that made the long hours a struggle, but the company was good, and Barry's humor picked up. There were plenty of delusional manic depressives to talk to. Barry listened to his new companions and found himself enjoying the process of inventing things about himself. Gradually, he turned himself into a hero soldier, drawing on stories his grandfather had told him. He mentioned to Dr. Nyberg that he was trained in hand-to-hand combat and had to be treated with care. There were to be no sudden noises or members of staff sneaking up on him, otherwise Barry couldn't be held responsible for his actions. This fantasy may have been seen as a mild relapse by Dr. Nyberg, but Barry knew exactly what he was doing. He had grown wiser over a period of psychiatric confinement and felt he might even have gained the power of second sight. There was something visionary about the way he could think nowadays. He understood he had come face to face with lunacy, and there was no way out of it now. They might be able to control his condition. He might be able to walk away from this hospital a sane man. But that didn't mean his craziness was gone. That full-blown craziness Barry had discovered in his garden was something he would know like a friend forevermore. It had become a fact of life. With searing clarity, Barry realized he might get better in time, but he would never be himself again. Teresa's visits were difficult to endure. They brought up hints of the old Barry. Because he was wiser, he could take a step back whenever he felt the old Barry coming on. He didn't like the intrusions, though. Teresa had taken to visiting too often. One day, she explained that she and the children had left London and were living in Devon. The news came as no great surprise. It didn't seem particularly strange, no more strange than anything else that had happened. But every time Teresa raised the subject, Barry liked to pretend he didn't know what she was talking about. You've moved to Devon? We've talked about this, Barry. He would look away then. I guess it must have slipped my mind. It was difficult for Teresa, too. Before long, she came to dread her visits, being with Barry, not knowing who he was anymore. She was sensitive to the idea that she might have abandoned him and was making every effort to maintain her links, however tenuous they had become. She would do anything, she told herself. She'd begun to visit every other day. The drive took three hours there and back, even in Barry's two-liter S-type Jag. And all the way through, Teresa would be conscious of the smell of his tobacco, as well as her resentment that it wasn't him driving the car and that he wasn't with her anymore. What Teresa wanted was safe old Barry and for everything to be normal again. The car handled beautifully. 
but she didn't like driving it and knew she would have to sell it because it would always be filled with Barry's ghost. She would spend an hour or so with him every time, caught between her impatience to get back and the guilty apprehension that leaving too soon would amount to a neglect of duty. Barry was amazed at how much of this he could sense. It was in Teresa's inability to meet his gaze, uncrossing and recrossing her legs, as well as the innocuous things she said. The children were always happy. They always sent their love. Teresa was happy too, but her smile didn't say so. She would harp on about their holiday home in the country and how, under the circumstances, moving there had been the best thing to do. You've moved to Devon? Please, Barry, we know this. I'm sorry, I wasn't aware. I've told you. I don't know how many times. Each time it was established, during the course of a visit, that Teresa and the kids had moved to Devon, Barry would go on to ask, Are you sure you don't have any logistical problems? The commanding, quasi-military sound of the question appealed to him. It became part of their routine. What about the logistics? It amused him because it was the kind of question the old Barry might have asked. Teresa came to accept it as a ritual he had to perform. She used it to reassure her husband that she was coping fine and everything was good and he shouldn't worry himself. Even so, it was a loop they were in and both were complicit in allowing it to happen. On one of these occasions, Barry said, Speaking logistically, I would have thought it's a problematic location. He felt great saying it. Nearly a month of visits and right away Teresa shook her head, overcoming the burden of how strangely elliptical their encounters had become. No, Barry, everyone's very friendly. Do you remember the neighbors? Mr. Figure across the road? He popped in and offered to drive the kids to school on his way to work in the mornings. And I found out about a scheme run by the vicar's wife, sharing shopping trips on Wednesdays. Do you remember Reverend Cratchit and his wife? They were alone in the visiting area, sitting opposite each other on sofas. Barry was listening carefully, nodding. Oh yes, he said, that fellow Cratchit. A nurse had come along to check everything was in order. She thought to offer some refreshment, a cup of tea perhaps. She laid her hand on Barry's shoulder and bent over slightly to have a word. Barry swung out with his arm. He caught the nurse in the stomach. She doubled over and dropped to her knees. Teresa got to her feet, yelling for help. He was out of his mind. Barry turned away from the nurse. He got up and pushed Teresa over the sofa. Her legs flew up and she hurt her back as she fell. This was perfect. It was the perfect release. It was flapping out of the water freedom. Barry had visions of a flock of geese taking off and felt spiritually connected with the sky. What a shame the women, the nurse and Teresa, were trying so hard to scramble away. They seemed unduly upset. They should be coming to him and hugging him. He backed away then, straightening his hair. It had flown over his forehead. He was sweating. He took a deep breath and let it out with a relieved whistle. Now that he'd made his point, he was fine. In a court of law, he would have been wholly in the clear, he thought. 
Dr. Nybird had been given ample warning that nobody should try to sneak up on him. His reflexes, drilled into him from the days of frontline battle, were still lightning quick, but only ever defensive. He walked into the corner of the visiting area and stood to attention as two male nurses rushed him. That won't be necessary, he said, holding up his hand as they approached. Teresa watched in tears, kneeling in the opposite corner of the room as they dragged her husband backwards by the arms, and other members of staff attended to the nurse, still gasping on the floor. The very next day, she was on the phone to Dr. Nyberg. I'm so upset by what happened, she said. That's perfectly normal, the doctor assured her. It's been very difficult for all of us. How is he today? He wants to discharge himself. Teresa bit her tongue and thought, That's not possible, is it? This would not be advisable, the doctor said, reading her silence. I'm sure you'll agree, Mrs. Heller. Teresa didn't know what to say. Do you think I should talk to him? I should explain there may be some connection between your visits and your husband's current state of mind. Teresa sank into her chair. She felt she was being blamed. Dr. Nyberg coughed politely. In view of Barry's condition, he went on more intimately, I have called a case conference. I'd like to know what your feelings are. What does that mean? Ostensibly, nothing would change, the doctor said. I may have to vary Barry's medication slightly, but we remain cautiously hopeful. Barry is in good hands. By keeping him under observation, all we're endeavoring to ensure is that he receives the right treatment in the long run, Mrs. Heller. Do you see? Teresa was nodding. Not saying anything, but nodding. What I mean, the doctor said, assuming my colleagues are in agreement, is that your husband might remain in the care of the hospital for a spell, regardless of whether he wishes to discharge himself right now. Of course, the prim Swedish voice added quickly, we would review this position with you on a regular basis. Distressing and awful as it was, Teresa felt she needed to go along with Dr. Nyberg's insinuations. It seemed so pragmatic. In the state he was in, Barry couldn't very well come home. The doctor was good enough to mention his opinion that Barry had probably been ill for a good many years and Teresa mustn't feel she was in any way to blame. In the face of this delicate exchange, her position became passive. She could get on with her life and make sure there was a good home for Barry to come back to when he was well enough to return. A few days later, she was advised by one of Dr. Nyberg's colleagues that Barry had settled down nicely. He was responding well to his new medication. The hospital was keeping his employers informed. She'd learned there would be no extra cost. Barry's comprehensive insurance even covered mental breakdown. But it hurt to think that her visits could excite her husband to the point of mania. At times, Teresa would grow irritable with the children, showing her harshness then, even if they so much as raised their voices. She sold the Jaguar easily. The landline went on ringing for weeks afterwards. 
I'm ringing about the jag, the potential buyers would say. Have you sold the jag yet? Each wasted effort to answer the phone was another aggravation, a thorn in Teresa's side. Occasionally, one of the kids would pick it up and shout for her, Mom, it's about the car again. She might be out in the garden. She might be chopping an onion or getting ready to bundle the kids off to school. She would have to shout back, Just tell them it's gone! Tell them it doesn't exist! Chapter 14 It was so black and silent in my cave. For a long time I thought I was dead. Even the smells had faded. An owl hooted every once in a while, but that had stopped as well. I found myself drifting through a mental landscape with very few features in it. I had virtually nothing to go on but the events of one difficult day, as well as a single memory of my past, indicating that I'd known something about the trauma of being lost as a child. I told myself I must be dead, or close to it. Even the stars, so dazzling at first, gradually seemed to switch themselves off. There was nothing but a black universe with the tiniest blemish of light in it, and that was me. I realized, with some force, that I could choose to die at any time. In what I was coming to think of as my tomb, I would raise my head and cough occasionally to make sure I was still there. Letting my imagination run loose, yielding some terrible notions, I began to fear that this night would go on forever with nothing in it but me. I believed I was doomed to lie in a heap of goat dung for all eternity and be conscious of it. It became essential to imagine any kind of alternative. I saw myself waking up in a bed, a fresh shirt and tie on the chair in my room, and a dry, clean suit hanging in the wardrobe. Any moment now I would get up and have a shower, get dressed, and go to work. I could see myself walking along a beach, stirred by the gentle ripple of the waves. I imagined having dinner with a woman I didn't really know, flirting with her. This was warm and pleasant to think about, but it made me profoundly upset, knowing that my glowing speck in a black void scenario was far closer to the truth, and that I could extinguish that tiny light any time I wanted to. It was pitch black in the cave, but not cold. In fact, the cave seemed to get warmer. Towards the middle of the night, I could hardly feel the discomfort I knew my body must be in. Only when I changed positions, then my arm would come back to life with a war cry, a shock that made everything more urgent and gave me the will to persevere. From time to time, I would open my eyes and see so many stars carpeting the entrance. My breathing would be shallow, and I would rub my damaged arm, thinking, this thing won't beat me. The most obvious questions to do with how I'd come to be wearing a suit in the wilderness were too perplexing to engage with. I found it more advantageous to consider the evidence of my own daydreaming. It's interesting that although I couldn't remember much about myself, I was able to deduce things from the fantasies and half-thoughts, 
parading like a carnival of floats. All that stuff about walking along a beach, or having a job to go to, or having dinner with an attractive woman. Those images, I thought, might be telling me something about the person I'd left behind. They seemed to come from somewhere immediate. There were other elements to these fantasies embedded in my thoughts. I didn't know my name or what I'd done in life, but I could recall things like mobile phones and computers. It placed me in a period of time I knew a lot about but couldn't remember myself in. I was aware of notions like global warming and overpopulation and knew exactly what they meant. And yet, in the most essential way, these notions were redundant. They didn't illuminate anything specific to do with my experience or what it was like to be me. They were just dead weights that held me back in the darkness with no more than the residue of what my life had been to grapple with. Judging from the fantasy of waking up in a room alone, I guessed I wasn't in any kind of long-term relationship. I have no idea why this speculation should have disappointed me, but it did. I wondered if the woman I'd imagined having dinner with was real. I didn't know who she was, but her face was vivid enough, and I thought she might be English. I wondered if I was a father. If I asked myself, am I a father? I would listen and listen, and there would be something like a yes coming from me out of the dark. It was like an affirmative feeling, or being stroked in a gentle way. There was plenty of information, but no facts to rely on. I realized I could have been making up all kinds of stories about myself. I knew that because it was so essential I should be positive, I could as easily have been telling myself I was a father just for the uplift this might give me. I understood this all too well, but chose to believe it anyway. It was necessary to find any means of fostering a sense of purpose in that otherwise barren place. With a purpose, I might just survive there. I could get out of this, and it would all be for the children. At some point, I had to accept that I was stuck in a cave, that I'd brought myself there and would wake up the next day, look out and see the forest and the mountains, and have no idea what to do next. But there, in the darkness, dozing, too worried to sleep, so close to myself and the parts of me I didn't know, I came across something else important. It seemed to be an entity apart from me, always observing the predicament I was in, but untroubled by it, and ridiculously demure. This entity never said much, yet it was alert and ready to be helpful. I had to resist thinking about the worst aspects of my ordeal in order to hear the whispers that would turn out to be the best advice. That's how I got to sleep in the end, by listening. I'd made myself as comfortable as I could. There was nothing else to think about. When I opened my eyes, it was dawn, and my name was on the tip of my tongue.